There are certain passages of Scripture that are probably just best read and sung and left unpreached. And uh, because I feel like as I, as I preach it, I'm just going to mess it up. I'm going to... But thankfully, we know that um, I've been reading a lot in First Corinthians these days, and I, I, I'm so encouraged by Paul's reminder that, you know, we're earthen vessels, we're jars of clay. And that's intentional on God's part because... He wants weak people preaching his word so that the surpassing power of the gospel is on display and that it's clear that it ain't the giftedness of the preacher and it ain't the, gift, the giftedness of the personality and the charisma. It's all in the beauty and wonder of Christ. So may the Lord grant that to us this morning, even as I ask that he would get me out of the way and allow us to see the risen and exalted throne room of God with the lamb there in the center. So this morning what we're going to do is consider the second part of this vision in Revelation chapter 5 as it switches from God the Father to God the Son. And we're going to, we're going to see here three points in Revelation chapter 5, the problem of unworthiness, the solution to unworthiness, and then the response to, wor to worthiness. So let's consider first of all in the first four verses the problem of unworthiness. Let's read again chapter 5, verse 1, where John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sees something. He says, I saw in the right hand of him, referring to God the Father, who was seated on the throne, who we saw in chapter 4, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So God the Father here is holding a scroll with seven seals. Now, seven should be a very familiar number to us in Revelation. We've seen it over and over again. We've seen it in chapter 1. We've seen seven letters to seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And so seven is the number of completion, fulfillment, perfection in the book of Revelation. And so it shouldn't surprise us that this scroll that the Father is holding is sealed with, uh, with complete seals, unable to be unbroken, una unable to be unrolled. And these seals represent, along with the scroll, God's plan for all of human history, namely his judgments. Now again, where, where do we get that idea? Remember last week as we were in Revelation chapter 4 and talking about that particular vision, what was the dominant Old Testament passage that was governing John's vision there? Well, it was Ezekiel chapter 1. And Ezekiel continues to be John's main glasses or lenses or frame of reference as he enters into this vision in, in Revelation chapter 5. We read in Ezekiel chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 the following, and when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it before me. Now here's what's interesting. Listen to what Ezekiel records about what's in this scroll. And it was, had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. So this is a scroll, this is, I believe, the same scroll that John is referencing in Revelation chapter 5, that has to do with God's judgments. In other words, the scroll contains the content, the, the, the whole course, and the consummation of history, especially as it unfolds in God's judgment on the world. So in it is written how things will end, both for Christians and for non-Christians. 
Now look at verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. This question almost echoes throughout the heavens. Is anyone worthy to break the seals on the scroll? Now in the background of this question is Daniel 7 and Daniel 12, which are the only places in the Old Testament where the sealing and unsealing of books are mentioned. The books are sealed until the end of time, and John is clearly witnessing the fulfillment of Daniel's 500-year-old prophetic vision. We read of that vision in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Now we read in Daniel chapter 12, verses 4 and 9. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. So these are questions that are concerning the end. What, how's it going to wrap up? How's it all going to end? Then in verse 3 we read, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. This is devastating, as we'll see in just a moment. All creation in heaven and on earth is standing motionless and speechless as the search is undertaken for someone who is worthy to open this book. Is no one capable of bringing history to its ordained end? Is no one capable of bringing the plans and purposes of God to fulfillment? Is no one able to execute God's will and God's decree? Call your congressman. Call your senator. Write letters of inquiry to the most brilliant scientists and astrophysicists. If necessary, get in touch with the White House. Surely someone here on earth is worthy enough and strong enough and wise enough to open the book of human history and tell us about its contents and reveal to us its consummation. Now you'll notice that back in verse 2, a mighty angel is the one who proclaimed that no one in heaven or on earth was able to open the scroll or reveal its contents. This wasn't an ordinary angel. This is a mighty angel, a strong angel. This was an angel that never sinned. This angel refused to join Satan in his rebellion against God. Yet not even a strong and sinless, a mighty angel is able to get access to that book. Sinlessness is not the issue. Otherwise, the angel would be able to open it. No one is worthy, not even a mighty sinless angel. No one can open the scroll or break the seals. And if no one can do that, the human race is doomed. If the scroll were not opened, according to Revelation, these things would not come to pass. First of all, according to Revelation 6.10, the martyrs of the faith would never be avenged. According to Revelation 8, 4, and 5, the prayers of the saints would never be answered. According to Revelation 9, 15, the plan of God would not be accomplished. Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdom of God would not be fulfilled. 
And then in the later part of the book, in chapters 16 through 18, the wicked could not be judged. In 19 and 20, chapters 19 and 20, Jesus would not come back. And in Revelation 21 and 22, there would be no glory of the new heavens and the new earth with which God's people would reign with him forever. That's all that is being contained in this book or in this scroll. And if no one is able to open it, then God's promises don't come true and all hope is lost. And John knows this, which is why he responds in verse 4 the way he does. And I began to weep loudly, John says in verse 4, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John's disappointment erupts in a flood of tears as he contemplates the painful postponement or perhaps elimination of God's redemptive purposes. Is there no one who can take authority over history and ensure that God's enemies will be judged and his people will be vindicated? Remember, John is receiving this vision and passing this vision on to people who are suffering under deep persecution. People who have all but lost hope that Jesus' promises are going to come true. And here, they reach a moment where it looks like things are hopeless. Remember, it was a bad, bad day in John's day in the late first century. John himself was the last living apostle. He's exiled on an island Seven, or sorry, five of the seven churches to which John is writing are really struggling. To be perfectly honest, there are times when we all feel the same way. There are times when I feel the way John felt as he stood before the throne of God. It resonates with my own fears and anxieties about where human history is going and whether or not we are ever going to emerge from the colossal mess we've created for ourselves as a Christian church and in a fallen world. But thankfully, that's not where the story ends. Point number two, the solution for unworthiness. Look at verse five. And, no, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. John's tears are not final. Since he's told here that there is one who has conquered and has the right to open the scroll. Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the descendant of David. Those, those two phrases, of the tribe of Judah, of the descendant of David, offer the key to why he can open it. Genesis 49.10 told us the lion of the tribe of Judah to whom would be the obedience of the peoples. Remember, the promised Messiah was to come from Judah's line. And then prophesied in Isaiah 11, the Messiah would come from the root of David. We read in Isaiah 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot or a root from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. The root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. This conquering Messiah has come. He's worthy, according to verse 5, because he has conquered. Now, how did he conquer, though? Look at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb 
a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. John is surprised that when he looks for a lion, he finds a lamb. He is told that a lion, a symbol of strength and greatness and dignity and honor and majesty, has conquered. And yet when he looks, he sees a dead lamb. This is a bizarre image. He was slain, and yet he's risen because he's standing there. He's standing as those slain. So it's this juxtaposition of living dead, a lamb that was dead but is alive. The death of Jesus as the Lamb of God is in fulfillment of his right to the throne of Judah and David, the means by which he is able to break the seals and reveal the content of the scroll. It is because not only is he descendant from the line of Judah, the line of David, but also because he died as the Lamb of God, as that Passover lamb that Exodus 12 pictured, as the one that John said in John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as 1 Corinthians 5.7 describes Christ, Christ as our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed, and as Peter calls us to the lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus is the lamb. But here, John makes clear that it's the death of Jesus as the lamb of God that enables him to break the seals and reveal the content of the scroll because it's through that death that he conquered. Look at verse 9 where this is explicitly made clear. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? What? For you were slain. Don't miss that. There's the purpose for why he's able ultimately. Yes, right descendants is appropriate. He has to be from the tribe of Judah. He has to be descended from David if he's going to be the Messiah. But he's only worthy if he's slain. And he's slain, and by his blood, verse 9, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So verse 9 makes explicitly clear that by means of Christ's blood alone, that is his death on the cross, people from every tribe and language and people and nation are ransomed. That is, they are purchased, they are redeemed, they are delivered, they are free, set free from sin and condemnation. So Christ conquers because his death was not the end, but was followed by resurrection. And he has made those whom he ransomed to be a kingdom, of pre kingdom and priest to our God who shall reign on the earth forever and ever. So it's by virtue of his death, by virtue of his atonement, by virtue of what he did on the cross, that he ransoms people for God. In other words, he accomplishes God's plan. Now, why is that the fulfillment of God's plan? Because that's what Genesis 1 intended. At the beginning, God wanted a people displaying his glory, populating the world from every nation and tribe. And this is how Christ fulfilled it. He dies for their sin and rises again 
So as we'll see later in the book of Revelation, God can be justly forgiving of them and then bring, them, bring to fulfillment his eternal purposes, which is the ransoming of a worldwide people for God to dwell with him. And then in verse 7 we read, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand, that is the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, took the, took the, took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So in the moment of this great triumph and joy, the Lamb approaches the throne and just grabs the scroll out of the Father's hand. Notice how Jesus conquers, not as a lion, but as a lamb. The seven-sealed book is opened, not because Christ mauled his enemies, but because he gave up his life for sinners. And now what is it about Jesus that makes him so worthy of adoration and praise. What is it about Jesus that has won for him worldwide worship ever since he rose? What is it about Jesus that makes him so irresistibly attractive? Why is he alone worthy of our wholehearted allegiance and love? Because he's the lion lamb. That, it's that juxtaposition of strength through weakness that has won him a worldwide people and that will continue to win him a worldwide people until he comes again. Sam Storms describes the beauty of Christ in this lion-lamb juxtaposition in this way. The lion in whom we find unimpeachable authority is also the lamb who embodies humility and meekness in the highest degree. The lamb who wields power and strength that no one can resist is also the, or sorry, the lion who wields power and strength that no one can resist is also the lamb who walked this earth in weakness and suffering. The lion who rules the world and governs its every move is also the lamb who was led to slaughter by his enemies. The lion who is known for his uncompromising commitment to righteousness is also the lamb who overflows in love to sinners like you and me. The lion whose majestic beauty captivates the human heart is also the lamb who condescended to take upon himself the likeness of a man and was in appearance quite ordinary and unimpressive. The lion who commands total obedience from everyone is also the lamb who in his earthly life submitted himself in obedience to the law of God for us. The lion who is holy and pure beyond our wildest imagination is also the lamb who is gracious and kind and tender-hearted to all. The lion who could silence a raging storm with a single word is also the lamb who refused to speak or revile against those who nailed him to the cross. The lamb who is life itself is all, the lion who is also life itself is also the lamb who willingly dies for his enemies. The lion who is exalted high above the heavens, immeasurably beyond all of creation and myriad of angels, before whom the greatest and most powerful kings and commanders on earth are but a speck of dust on the scales, is also the lamb who stooped low, who condescended to become one of us and suffer the trials and challenges put upon him by weak and sinful men. The lion who is in himself infinite holiness and righteousness and purity and power is also the lamb who welcomes broken sinners into his presence and makes intimate friends of his enemies. 
The lion, who is himself, needs nothing. Being altogether self-sufficient is also the lamb who gives and then gives and then gives yet again so generously and abundantly. The lion, who is in himself of such blinding glory and brilliance that adoring angels cover their faces, is also the lamb who humbled himself and identified with his creatures so that they might behold him and enjoy him forever. And then one more. The lion who, as Paul says in Philippians 2, exists from all eternity in perfect equality with the Father and the Spirit, equal in all respects in his glory and his divinity, is also the Lamb who in time and history humbled himself and took on the likeness of sinful men and women. See, brothers and sisters, it's this juxtaposition of meekness and majesty that makes Christ so irresistibly attractive. We have a lion who drives robbers and thieves out of temples. And we have lambs, a lamb who only days later allowed these robbers and thieves to nail him to a cross. We have a lion who demands absolute obedience from everyone and yet renders it on their behalf when they can't fulfill it. And we have a lion who rightly burns with wrath and roaring vengeance at the rebellious and unbelieving, but is the one who submitted to his own wrath and suffered in the place of repentant, rebellious, and unbelieving sinners in his own body and soul, taking that very wrath on himself on the cross. Brothers and sisters, it's the beauty of the lion lamb that grips us and that gives us hope that one, in our weakness, there is one who can identify us and actually do something about it. Because we come to a weak Savior, but a conquering Savior. And therefore, weak people like us can conquer in Him. And that's the hope of the gospel to all of us this morning. If you're here this morning and have yet to come into contact, brothers and sisters, friends, this is the beauty that your soul was made to enjoy. Okay, You were made to enjoy the lion lamb for all of eternity. That's why you're made. It's to be with him, to know him in this way, to value him, and to one day be with him. So I ask you to turn from your sin and embrace this lamb now so that you can one day experience him in the way that these saints are experiencing him here in Revelation 5. Third point, the response to worthiness the response to worthiness. We've seen the problem, John weeping over the fact that there is no one worthy to open the scroll. We've now seen the solution, the lion of the tribe of Judah, of the root of David, who has conquered as the lamb who was slain and who through his blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. So what's the response? Look at verse 8. And when he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures, we met them in the previous chapter, and the 24 elders, we met them as well, fell down before the Lamb. Remember, they were falling down before God the Father in chapter 4. Now they're falling down before the Lamb who was slain in chapter 5. Obviously indicating he's God, too. Right? Because otherwise, this would be gross idolatry. This would be gross idolatry. I mean, the, the, the the five, or the four living creatures and the 24 elders swap worship and say, we're going to switch over to him now, and we're going to worship the lamb. It's like, wait, 
God the Father is the creator of all. This is idolatry. No, it's not idolatry if he's God the Son, which he is. And so we see here that they fall down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So as representatives of the saints, as I said last week, the 24 elders, along with the four living creatures, worship the Lamb as they present to the Lamb the prayers of the saints. And at the sound of such glorious, great news, there is only one appropriate response. Verse 9, and they sang. And they sang. Singing. But before, we, before the singing, note, there's praying. The prayers of the saints. These are more, brothers and sisters, than just simple prayers asking for personal blessing from God's people, okay? The prayers of the saints are more likely impassioned pleas of men and women on earth, in the church, for God to reveal his glory and his justice in bringing righteous retribution on his enemies and vindicating his truth and goodness. It is, in essence, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And these prayers are received and they will be fulfilled because they've been received by the slain lamb who is standing and will execute God's plan. Look at a few verses on this. Chapter 6, which we'll get to, Lord willing, next week. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, how true and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. That's a prayer of the saints who have been martyred. And that's there too in chapter 5, being presented to the one who was slain, reassuring those saints that their blood was not in vain, just as Christ's blood was not in vain. Because just as Christ rose after being slain, so these martyrs will rise after being slain in his name. We see it also in chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. And another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So this idea of the prayers of the saints going up. These prayers are the prayers of God's people that God's kingdom would come and God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's the Lord's prayer, essentially. It's what the Lord taught us to pray. And these prayers are ascending to the, front, to the throne and being received by the Son. Now, let me conclude with five points of application. Five points of application um, from this vision that I hope will be a blessing and a help uh, to us as we've considered what John has shown us and, and the Lord has revealed to us about the occupied throne room of God with the Lamb seating on, sitting on the throne. First of all, we have a lesson here about the meaning of the universe. We have a lesson here about what this world is all about. Why we're here. Where we're going. What the whole point of everything is. Here we see not just the key that unlocks the mystery of the universe. That's Christ's death and resurrection. But we see why the universe exists to begin with. We see the mystery itself. Not just the key that unlocks the mystery. 
And the mystery is Jesus. He is why there is something rather than nothing. It's about getting glory for the Son of God. That's why the universe exists. He's the reason there's something rather than nothing. God created the universe not only through Jesus, but for Jesus. By saying the universe exists for Jesus, I mean that everything that exists was brought into being to admire, adore, enjoy, celebrate, and relish the beauty and splendor of the Lamb of God in his victory over sin, death, and the devil. And in that admiration and celebration, we will find our most enduring, satisfying, eternal joy and delight. That is why we're made. That is why the universe exists. That is meaning. That's, from, that's where we're to gather our purpose. We're to gather each day reminding ourselves, this life is not all there is. I am headed toward heaven where I will be here in this throne room with the multitude of ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people and nation. This is what we're living for. This is what we're hoping for. This is what we desire. Secondly, we have not only have a lesson about meeting, but we have a lesson about our message as a church. We have a lesson about our message as a church. Brothers and sisters, we exist to put Jesus on display as the lion lamb. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. The center of our faith is the key to history. It's the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul, when he writes to the church in Corinth, says, brothers and sisters, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, I'm writing to you what is of first importance, that Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised again, according to the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, we are a church that desires to put Jesus on display. We are not to be first and foremost identified as Baptists or Reformed, as valuable and precious as those doctrines are, but we are here to put Christ on display. We believe those things lead to displaying Christ rightly, but that's not what we want to be identified as. We want to be identified as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ that is set apart from him, for him, to share him with others, to invite others to him. Because apart from Jesus Christ, we have no hope. If Christ has not died and risen, according to 1 Corinthians 15, we're still in our sins, our faith is in vain. I'm standing up here doing an exercise in futility. You're sitting there listening to lies. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, we are not in our sins. We will inherit eternal life where there would be no hope for redemption and no promise of new life. We have all the hope for redemption and all the promise of new life because the lamb lamb that was slain is standing as though risen. So let, let that always be our main message. When you're talking to your family and your friends, It's not just about getting them to believe tangential points of theology. It's about them getting them to understand Christ and embrace Christ and love Christ. I want people to leave interactions with us thinking about valuing, considering Jesus more rather than... And so we need to ask ourselves, is that the way people leave me? Are they they getting a a vibe and, 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 and more of an interest in Christ as a result of our interactions and friendship and relationship and 
That's our desire. That's what we desire to live and preach and die testifying to. So meaning, message. Third, mission. Mission. We can rejoice that God's plan for the world will not be frustrated because Christ has redeemed some from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Brothers and sisters, this is why when we send missionaries, we have every reason for believing that people will trust Christ through them. This is why when we let our brother A.W. and J.P. go in a few months back to serve the Lord, we have absolute confidence they're not going in vain. We know God has purchased people there in northern Africa that he's going to use them to reach. We know that our brother and sister Dwayne and Kimberly in Serbia and our brother, sister Michael and Ashley in Ireland and the, the missionaries that, and, and lay partners and other pastors that we work with around the world and partner up with, we support them and get behind them because we know that God has a desire not just to redeem people from the United States, but from people from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation. We have been made a kingdom and priest to our God, which means, in part, that we are called to represent people before God in prayer and represent God to people in witness. That's what priests do. That's why Christ died, was to ransom us so that we would be prayerful witnesses to him, laying our lives down so that others would come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to say this, too, about our mission. Brothers and sisters, you know this, but it, but it bears repeating. Ethnic diversity is at the very heart and core of God's saving purposes in Christ. He's not just interested in saving white people. God loves ethnic diversity as is clearly evident from the purposes of Christ's sinless life, substitutionary death, and bodily resurrection. God's aim is to have a redeemed bride for his son from all ethnic groups. When you permit feelings in your heart of dislike and suspicion and disdain toward a person of a different skin color, you are blaspheming the majesty of the Creator God. You are striving against the redemptive work of Christ. You're despising His shed blood on the cross. You are denigrating and denying the purpose of God in redeeming men and women of all ethnicities and colors and making them a kingdom of priests. Racism is blasphemy. Point blank. It's blasphemy against the work of Christ. We cannot worship and glorify God or embrace his redemptive purposes in Christ while treating his supreme creation with contempt, whatever color or culture or age that creation might be. This is why I totally agree with what Al Mohler said a couple of years ago. At that point, he was com commenting upon those outrageous events in Charlottesville, but these, these words bear repeating again. Moeller says, a claim of white superiority is not merely wrong and not merely deadly. It's a denial of the glory of God in creating humanity, every single human being in his own image. It is a rejection of God's glory in creating a humanity of different skin pigmentation. It is a misconstrual of God's glory in creating different ethnicities. Most urgently, it's a rejection of the gospel of Christ, the great good news of God's saving purposes in the atonement, accomplished by Christ. A claim of racial superiority denies our common humanity, our common sinfulness, our common salvation through faith in Christ, and God's purposes to create a common new humanity in Christ. You cannot preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and hold to any notion of racial superiority. It is impossible, and it is. Two more. Fourthly, manner. The manner with which we are called to live in following the lamb who was slain. Brothers and sisters, we learn 
from Revelation chapter 5, that the way God rules the world is through resurrection following death. Christ triumphs through suffering and death instead of through destruction of his opponents with overwhelming force. One writer I read this week said, human beings, even apparently faithful Christians, too often want an almighty deity who will rule the universe with, with power, preferably on their terms, and use force when necessary, but understanding the reality of a lamb as Lord terminates all such misperceptions of divine power and justice and their erroneous human corollaries. What's he saying there? We want, we want a king just like the days of the Jews. We want a king to come in and clean house. We want Christ to come and just clean house, whip his enemies, kill them, whatever, bring the sword, and that day's coming when he returns again. But we want that now. We want a conquering king. We want someone who will show his muscle, be strong. Brothers and sisters, everyone is wanting to win in our cultural moment. It's all a big fight. Brothers and sisters, we need to follow the lion lamb. And we do that not by defeating, controlling, manipulating, or canceling our enemies. We do it by loving them, as Jesus commanded us to do. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. To serve, love, and befriend our enemy in our cultural moment, much less to die for the unworthy, is repellent to people. It is stinks. Why would you even have a friendship with somebody you disagree with, much less affirm anything good about them? That's our moment. That's our moment. Everybody, if you don't agree with me wholesale, canceled. Get out of my life. Toxic. Terrible person. That is not to be the Christian way. And we can get caught up into it and swept up into that, all that adrenaline and all that. And that is not the way of the Lamb. That is not commending Christ to people. That's pushing them away from him. Because we are failing to represent him well. Laying down our rights for one's enemies feels like surrendering when it's actually the way of the cross. I've heard Christians say, kindness doesn't work in our cultural moment. Christians have said that. And I want to say, wait, I didn't think kindness was a tactic. I thought it was a command. We don't get to play by the world's rules. We play by the Lamb's rules. I've heard Christians say, kindness doesn't work. It's un-American. It's for losers. Christians are losers. Yeah, we're losers. We've always been losers. And we win by losing. That's how, that's how the church wins. By losing, by being killed. Up until the time that Jesus Christ returns to this earth in the second coming, brothers and sisters, victory, and I'm talking about victory in the mission of God, is achieved not by the sword, but by sacrifice. That's why Peter said, Jesus said to Peter, put the sword away, man. Put the sword away. We don't fight like that. We don't do, we don't do things that way. We follow the lamb-like silence of being willing to suffer. Jesus conquers through the cross, and we must follow him in the same way. More could be said about that, but we've got to move on. Number five, motive. Our motive for what we do, why we live the way we live and why we do what we do. The motive is in verses 11 through 13. 
Then I looked and I heard about the throne, around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Isn't that day going to be wonderful? A whole unified creation blessing one worthy person. All in beauty, all in wonder, all in joy to the one who alone is worthy. There's like a snowball effect. We're getting some, Lord willing, this week. We'll get the snowball, we'll get the snow shovels out for the first time. And I want you to think about this as, as, you, as you start to sweep your driveway or as you, as you start to see the, the snow starting to mount. I want you to think about the new coming creation. There's this snowball effect that leads to this avalanche of praise in verses 11 through 13. There's this holy turbulence that is engulfing the heavens. As the choir sings of God's majesty and the adoration of the Lamb, there's widening circles that join. Do you notice that? Almost like a ripple effect, like a huge stone is thrown in the middle of a, of a lake. At first, it's the four living creatures who are singing their song of praise. And then they are joined by the 24 elders. And then in verse 11, myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels follow suit. And if that were not sufficient, we read in verse 13 that every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them beginning to praise the risen lamb. The sevenfold shout of worship. Sevenfold, complete, full. Power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing are announced to the risen lamb. Rings out like a resounding huge bell chiming over and over again. What this tells us is that the ultimate goal of creation, the ultimate goal of theology, the ultimate goal of knowledge is worship. Theology without doxology is idolatry. All theology is meant to lead us to worship. If our learning and knowledge of God does not lead to the joyful praise of God, we failed. We only truly learn when we laud. We only truly learn when we laud, that is, praise. The only theology that's worth studying is a theology that you can sing. We worship God and the Lamb in song and give Him all glory and honor and praise and power because they belong to him. They're the property of him. We pledge allegiance to the Lamb of God and to the throne on which he sits. And that comes before our allegiance to any nation, as much as we love our beloved America. But we pledge allegiance to the Lamb of God and to the throne on which he sits. And we fall on our faces in adoration forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we join all of heaven as we did last Lord's Day with worshiping you through prayer now that's going to lead into song. Just as Revelation 5 showed us, the prayers of the saints being presented to the Lamb and then erupting in song, that's exactly what we want to do now. We want to offer this humble prayer of blessing to you that you, Lord Jesus Christ, are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed us and 
and all people whom, who call upon your name as a kingdom of priests to our God who will reign with you forever and ever. Lord, give that truth to be embedded deeply in the marrow of our bones so that we live this week, this day, confident that we are not going to die when the grave comes. We are going to live forever and ever because Christ left the tomb behind. And we in him will conquer. We will not, though we might be defeated here on some earthly level and experience some setbacks, this isn't the end of the story. This is no, not way things are going to go. Nations will rise. Nations will fall. The church will stand. The church will go forward. Not because the church is strong, but because the church is weak enough to depend on the Lion of Judah. The church is weak enough to depend on the Lamb who was slain and is standing. The church is your people who have been ransomed by you and are defended, protected, and upheld by you. So let us allow that truth to fuel our worship now as we respond to you in song with thanksgiving and joy in the name of our Lamb who was slain and yet is standing at the right hand of the throne of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together. Thank you, Pastor, for your words this morning. Let's stand and worship again one more time.